So the first reading for tonight is from Mark chapter 1, verse 9 to 15. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptised by John in the Jordan. Just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my Son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. At once the Spirit sent him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness for forty days, being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals, and angels attended, attended him. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. And the second reading is from Acts chapter 19, verse 8 to 17. Paul entered the synagogue and spoke boldly there for three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. But some of them became obstinate. They refused to believe and publicly maligned the way. So Paul left them. He took the disciples with them and had discussions daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. This went for two years so that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. God did extraordinary miracles through, through Paul so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him were taken to the sick and their illnesses were cured and their evil spirits left them. Some Jews who went around driving out evil spirits tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon-possessed. They would say, in the, name of, in the name of the Jesus whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. Seven sons of Sceva and Jewish a Jewish chief priest were doing this. One day the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know and Paul I know about, but who are you? Then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them and overpowered them all. He gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. When this became known to the Jews and Greeks living in Ephesus, they were all seized with fear and the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honour. Is the word of the Lord. Okay. Try no. <laughs> what do you reckon? What do you reckon, Dom? Is this on? Are we going to do this? Okay, it's good, so good so far. Hey, it's good to be at church tonight with you all. Uh, it's so good. After three weeks, Katie and I are back from America, and we loved being in America. It was so fun. It was refreshing, relaxing time. We did a lot of adventuring around the West Coast and New York City. But there's nothing better than being with God's people because that's where God is. God is with his people, and we believe that God has gathered us here by his spirit tonight. So he is especially with us, and that is something that's so exciting. Every Sunday, every week, we get to meet as his people. You know, as Stephen mentioned this evening, we're starting a new series looking at the letter to the Colossians, the letter to the Church of Colossae, and we've titled this series, Living in a Post-Christian World. Over the next eight weeks, we're going to be looking at how we can be Christian in a secular world, in a world that is not Christian. You see, Colossians is the letter written to a young church that's grappling with what it means to be a Christian in an otherwise non-Christian culture or a non-Christian world. In this kind of secular world, well, not secular, but in a world back then where it, the, they had power to influence them, what it meant to be Christian in such a subtle way that Christians in Colossae didn't even realize that the culture around them was influencing what they believed about Jesus, about pulling them away from the faith 
they professed. And the result was that they were, they were aligned to a gospel, to a good news of Jesus, that was neither good nor from Jesus, but rather a projection of the culture's reinterpretation of it. It sounds quite familiar because our world today is similar to the world of Colossae. They were in Colossae, in what we might call a pre-Christian world. The good news of Jesus was being proclaimed. People were coming to faith. It was a very exciting time, and it was disrupting the Jewish and Greek worldview. It was exciting, but not without its challenges, as we'll see throughout this letter, Shedding some of their cultural practices that were contrary to believing in Jesus would prove more difficult than they'd expect because it was the cultural air they breathed. And so likewise, if their their world was a pre-Christian world, our world today is a post-Christian world. And the disruption that we're experiencing in our time is not so much a, a movement towards uh, religiosity, but we're moving away from it. We've gone from a spiritual, religious view of the world, dominated by Christianity in the West, to a more secular view of the world, with a sense that this has begun since the Enlightenment period, but has accelerated dramatically since the 1960s with the sexual revolution. And signaled by, I think, the Time magazine cover, Is God Dead? Now many people either think God is dead or don't care rather if God is alive or not. But many people in the 21st century don't care about God or don't think God is relevant to their life anymore. Now, what makes living in this new secular age challenging for us as Christians is not actually what divides us. It's what seemingly unites us. You see, the, the gospel, the good news that our secular world might preach today Sounds very familiar. They talk about unconditional love for all kinds of people, from all walks of life. They talk about having peace in the world. They talk about having justice and compassion for refugees and all kinds of people who are afflicted by injustice. These characteristics of the news, the good news that our secular world preach, sounds very familiar, doesn't it? Very similar to the gospel and the good news of Jesus Christ, almost plagiarized, if you will. But while such a message might resonate with what we believe about the message of Jesus, the danger is when we take this to be the whole truth, to be the same as the good news of Jesus, to be the same message that Paul preached in Acts. And so we can end up like Colossae, end up practicing a kind of Christianity that's not really Christian at all. Generally, this looks like having a low view of the Bible, not really being inspired by God. Generally, it looks like having a low view of sin, that's not really a problem. No need for repentance. Spirituality is more or less traded for sentimentality, where everything is all sugar and spice and all things nice. And if we think we're immune to this particular cultural influence, this power, then we need to think again. Because you and I breathe this cultural air, and the air we breathe in is secular, not Christian. 
So how are we to be Christian living in a post-Christian world? This is what this series is all about. And the goal of this series is to give us the tools we need so that no matter what culture you find yourselves in and no matter what the culture throws at you, you can remain thoroughly Christian, uncompromisingly so, and also share about the good news of the kingdom with those who belong to the culture. And this evening, it's important we begin our journey by looking and exploring the worldview of Colossae, the letter we're looking at over the next eight weeks or so, and how that might shed some light on the nature of our world in our current secular age. But before we do so, I'm going to pray for us. So please join me as we pray. Father, we thank you so much. You love us. You care for us. You want us to be your people, to be united in the good news of Jesus. And so we pray, Lord, that tonight as we begin this journey in Colossians, as we begin looking at what it means to be Christian in a post-Christian world, would you give us ears to hear and hearts that are opened. Help us to know what it means and looks like to remain in Jesus and to therefore be able to, to live firmly for you in this world in a way that shows love and grace. We pray all these things in your Son's name. Amen. Who here has seen Star Wars? That's a good number of hands. Thank goodness the other two services wasn't so popular, but that's okay. Who here has seen all of the Star Wars movies? One through to eight. Fantastic. I'm a big fan of Star Wars. You know, the Star Wars series, the Star Wars franchise has done so well. It's lasted over 40 years or so. It'll probably go on forever. It's released so many books and video games and all these comics as well. And I think the reason why Star Wars has done so well in our world today is because it hits two things. Firstly, it speaks to our modern culture. Star Wars, the Star Wars galaxy, is a technological galaxy. It's a modern galaxy. And it brings all the struggles of a technological universe in the drama. We have war and corruption. We have the resistance and the empire and the reliance on technology for both sides as the empire tries and finds the rebel base or as the rebels try and find out the weak spots of the Death Star. Technology is what is used and relied upon there and it speaks to us as a modern society. But the thing is, this technological galaxy is introduced as being within an enchanted and spiritual realm. You see, this universe is ruled by what we might call, what they call, the force. And this all-powerful force permeates all of life and brings balance to everything. We're introduced to the Jedi, they're the guardians of the galaxy, the protectors, this kind of religion of sorts that seeks to do good and bring lights to the galaxy. And of course, the Jedi are the good guys, the Sith, Darth Vader. He is the bad guy. And they seek to use the force in a dark way that will bring evil and domination, so thus creating this tension, the light versus the dark. I can see a few of you smiling. You're excited, I can tell. The technological galaxy that is able to produce such powerful weapons like the Death Star that can destroy entire planets are nonetheless understood as being no match for the power of the Force. And therefore, such a technological galaxy sits within the realm of the Force and is at its mercy. That's the world or the, the universe that Star Wars exists in. This modern technological universe that is nonetheless 
very spiritual, and very enchanted. And such is not dissimilar to the world of Colossae. Colossae is a modern technological place near Ephesus. Lots of trade, lots of business going on. And yet, it's also a very spiritual and enchanted realm, facing evil spirits, praying to numerous gods, having revelations of angels and other spiritual beings, and casting magic and spells. Wasn't weird. That was normal. That was the world they operated in. And it's in this world Paul comes to them in Ephesus and speaks to them and says this in verse 8. He enters and talks about the kingdom of God into this context, into this spiritual realm. And of course, some people believe him, but most don't. And he's kicked out of the synagogue in Ephesus. And so he goes next door to the hall of Tyrannus and continues to to proclaim the kingdom of God for over two years. And we read in verse 10 that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. This is significant because it was in this time, the church of Colossae, a little city to the east of Ephesus, was founded. See, Ephesus was the city along the sea near Turkey. It was the major port that went towards Athens and towards the Greek islands and such. And so that was the main place Paul wanted to do his ministry. And from Ephesus, he sent out workers to proclaim the kingdom of God that he proclaimed in Ephesus. And one of those workers was Epaphras. And Epaphras was a local to Colossae, and he was sent to the cities in what's called the Lycus Valley, this valley that ran east from Ephesus. And there, there are cities that he visited like Laodicea and Colossae as well, which you can look at in, in Colossians chapter 4, where he talks about them there. But otherwise, he sends a Epaphras there to preach the good news, and we read about him in Colossians 1. It says there, We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, we pray for you, because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus. That's because Epaphras went there, proclaimed the gospel, and reported back to Paul in Ephesus. And then verse 7, You learned it from Epaphras, our dear and fellow servant. So therefore we ought to include Colossae as those residents in all of Asia who heard the word of God. And therefore, the context of the message that's preached here in Acts 19, this enchanted, magical, spiritual realm, is the same context this letter to the Colossians is written. And that's so important for us to note right now. Because the question that they will be asking Paul and Epaphras when they hear this message of the kingdom of God is this, does it have power? In our modern secular world, when they hear a message like that, they would be asking, is it rational? Does it make sense? Is it logical? But for ancient people, they were asking, no, is it powerful? And it seems that way, doesn't it, from our reading? So much so that the author tells us that extraordinary miracles were happening. I mean, miracles are already quite extraordinary, right? They're things that you can't explain. So why does he say extraordinary miracles? It's a bit weird. And here's the thing. It's because it's so unusual that there are handkerchiefs and aprons that Paul would touch. And people would take those handkerchiefs and aprons to people who are sick, who had evil spirits on them. And by virtue of touching them, they were healed. That is incredible. That is some power. I mean, imagine if you had a handkerchief and you just walk around and bam, healed. 
bam, demon gone, bam, your cancer's gone. That's pretty incredible. That's amazing power. And of course, the Jews, they wanted to get in on that power. They loved that idea of having such a powerful kingdom, powerful force. And so these itinerant Jews we read about in verse 13, they're trying to use this message about the kingdom of God to cast out demons. And they say, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. So they view this power as like a kind of spell. That's not surprising. Because the world they operate in, remember, is a, mar- a magical spiritual realm. If you wanted to fight against evil spirits, if you wanted to get rid of sickness and disease, you went to your witch doctor or to the sorcerer and you asked them for a spell or for a potion. And they would help you and give you that spell or potion and then you would cast that and hopefully the evil spirit would leave you. The Jewish Greek world had become muddied up in that kind of way. And so they were testing this out. They were going around to different evil spirits, people possessed, and saying, hey, okay, in the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches, come out. And then we get one such story where the demon speaks back. And we read about him in verse 14. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered. It's not a good sign. Jesus, I know... Paul, I recognize, but who are you? Can you imagine that? You think you've got this formula, you've got this spell all worked out, you're going to cast this demon out, and you go and say, in the name of Jesus whom Paul proclaims, get out, and the demon's like, sorry, what? (laughs) Excuse me? By what authority and power do you have? You'd be freaking out, thinking, oh man, this spell doesn't work. Oh, I'm in trouble. I am powerless. That's exactly what happened, isn't it? We see here, after that he spoke to them, the man who was possessed leaped on them, mastered all of them, overpowered them, so that they fled naked. Somehow, in all the commotion, the clothes came off. I'm not sure how it happened, how that happened. And they were bleeding and wounded. They left looking pretty foolish. We learn three things from this story, I think, or at least three things. Firstly, the power of God's kingdom does not reside in spells, does not reside in magic, does not reside in any power that the the Jews and the Greeks have seen ever before. Secondly, there is a real and present evil force that is opposed to the kingdom of God and humanity. And that evil force has no problem wanting to attack people when he wants to. And thirdly, we have no power to fight this rival kingdom on our own. We are utterly powerless when it comes to facing this evil before us. The context Paul is speaking into is this rival kingdom, the kingdom of sin and death. A kingdom that is active and seeks to enslave humanity and bring God's people down. Our world doesn't think like that today. And most of us Christians, if we're honest, we don't think like that either. We see sinful things happen. We see bad things happen. And we just call it what it is, just bad things. They're doing bad things. They're doing sinful things. But the thing is, Paul introduces us to a world that is not merely filled with sin, but is ruled by it personified it's ruled by sin and darkness the only place you might find such an idea in our modern world are in our children's stories 
our Disney stories. We've mentioned Star Wars. Technically, that's Disney now. Another example, though, is The Lion King. Mufasa, who is the good, ideal lion, king of Pride Rock, is juxtaposed with his brother Scar, who has a black mane, dark skin, and hangs out with hyenas in the place, that shadow place you should never go. And that's characterized by evil. Pride Rock is this place of life and light and abundance where things work in a good order. But when Mufasa is killed by his brother Scar and Scar takes hold of Pride Rock, it all of a sudden becomes enslaved, a place of darkness, a place of fire and destruction, a place of evil. Then when the prodigal son returns, Simba, to confront evil, we see a clash of good versus evil. And when good overcomes evil, we see Pride Rock restored, a place of life and light and abundance and goodness and order. In today's world, we've reduced the reality of cosmic evil, the power of sin and death, to that of fairy tales like the Lion King. But the world of fairy tales might have something more true to tell us about our world than what our secular world would say about itself. The kingdom of sin and death, this kingdom of evil that ruled the ancient world of Colossae is still the ruler of our secular world today. And the goal remains the same, to oppose God's good kingdom. The only difference is that it has a different face. It's not as obvious and upfront. That is the context we live in today. You see, our struggle to be Christian in a non-Christian or post-Christian world is a spiritual one. It's not a logical one. It's not an intellectual one. It's a spiritual one. The kingdom that enslaves humanity, this evil kingdom, who enslaves humanity through demons and evil spirits and acts, is the same kingdom that enslaves humanity today through false ideologies and half-truths. It's a kingdom that threatens to take us captive without us even knowing. And so Paul's letter written to the Colossians, it's to Christians and Colossians, is, is people who are facing this kind of pressure, knowing there's this evil, powerful force out there that wants to take them captive, even if they don't even realize it, because the culture they breathe in is not Christian. And so what's the solution for Paul? as we'll see throughout the next seven to eight weeks, in order to remain in God's kingdom, you've got to trust its king and follow its king. We read in Colossians 2, verse 6 and 7, which is kind of like the thematic verses for the whole letter. It says this, Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus as Lord or King, so walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught. Remain in Jesus, because when we remain in Jesus, we'll be Christian no matter the culture we find ourselves in and no matter what that culture throws at us. And we're going to unpack this more and more throughout our series over the next seven or eight weeks or so. But before we go ahead to next week, something I think is really important to remember as we remain in Jesus is that we're remaining in Jesus against the kingdom of sin and death. We're not remaining in Jesus against those people who are enslaved 
by that kingdom. Remaining in Jesus does not mean that we oppose people in the world around us. It means that we oppose the evil one who's enslaved them. We must remember that. Instead, we remain in Jesus for the sake of the world, for the sake of all people who are enslaved to this kingdom. As we are in the light in the kingdom of God, we go into the darkness proclaiming the good news of God's kingdom to all these people. And our desire and our hope and our prayer that that might be transformed by the love of God and His mercy and be freed from such a kingdom. See, too often we as Christians are known as those who are against others who aren't like us because we overreact to what it means to be remaining in Jesus Christ. We're a little bit too afraid. We go the other way. We're too afraid of being contaminated by the secular world we're in so much so that we want to shut ourselves off from it, kind of protect ourselves in a way and define who we are by what we're against, that political group or that community over there. But that's not actually what Paul encourages us to do when it comes to expressing what it is to remain in Jesus Christ in our world. In fact, when we are going out into our world and talking to people and hanging out with people, he says this in Colossians 4, Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. In what way? Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned by salt, so you may know how you ought to answer each person. Remaining in Jesus is as much about how we act towards outsiders as it is what it is about what we believe. So let me ask you, as you remain in Christ, what is the best use of your time? How should you live out your life as you seek to remain in Jesus Christ? I heard that uh, my predecessor, was a bit of a Bonhoeffer, Dietrich Bonhoeffer fanboy. I just heard about it, and I'm not sure if it's true. I quite like him too, but probably not a bigger, as big a fan as he is. But Bonhoeffer says this in regards to how we should live in our world today. The only way in which the church can defend her own territory is by fighting not for it, but for the salvation of the world. Otherwise, the church becomes a religious society which fights in its own interests and thereby ceases at once to be the church of God and of the world. It's a very powerful quote. Our existence as God's people who remain in Christ is not for ourselves, it's for the world. We don't define ourselves by what we're against in this world. We define ourselves by what we're for in Christ Jesus. We're against the evil one who enslaves people to sin and we're for a world who is enslaved by this evil one. And we seek to live our lives proclaiming the good news of Jesus, the kingdom of God, so they might be free. You know, it's not un unlawful necessarily to, to want to fight for our own rights as a Christian, to want to fight for our rights of religious freedom, for scripture in schools, for a biblical definition of marriage, whatever it might be. But doing so for our own sake and our own interests is not what actually Paul calls us to do as we remain in Christ. We need to seek to live at our lives for the world, even if we end up losing everything. And that's the thing. We might lose all our freedoms, all our rights, everything. 
But the reality is, when that day comes, have we truly lost anything at all? When we already have God in Jesus Christ. And when the Jews attempted to put a stop to Paul's preaching by kicking him out of the synagogue, did that stop the spread of the good news? No. It actually enhanced it. Because when Paul went to the hall of Tyrannus, he was there for two years. And for two years, we hear that all of Asia got to hear about God through the word. That wouldn't have happened unless Paul had faced opposition. That wouldn't have happened if Paul had fought for the right to speak in the synagogue, which it was his right. But instead, he desired to love and fight for the world's salvation, not his own. If God can use such opposition as that, he can use the opposition we face today still. We don't need to... We don't need religious freedom, believe it or not, to be effective in our gospel proclamation, to remain in Jesus. We just need to trust in God's power and remain close to Him. Our hope as we journey through the letter of Colossians in the next seven to eight weeks, as we unpack what it means to remain in Jesus, is that you will have the confidence and the tools you need to live as a true Christian in an uncompromising way, where you have great confidence and assurance in what you think and believe, established in your faith, but not in a way that you're shut off from the world around you, from the culture that you live in, but instead that you're actively engaged with it, seeking to share the love and the mercy and the grace of Jesus through the proclamation of the good news of his kingdom, which has the power as you speak and share it to break the bonds and chains that people around you are in, to bring them out of the kingdom of sin and death and darkness, which we see is such a powerful force in Acts 19, and bring them into the kingdom of life and light. That's my hope. That's our hope as a staff team, as a hope as a church, as we go through this, that you will know and have confidence to live in Christ and joyfully no matter what opposition you face, proclaim the word of the Lord. At the end of that section in Acts 19, we read that, uh, that Paul said, or Luke says, after all of this, so the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. There was no opposition that, that God's word was no match for. It overcame all opposition and worked through all opposition to see the kingdom of God advance and many come into it. All Paul did was remain in Jesus and loved the people around him. That's our goal. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much that you love us. And Lord, would that same love that you've loved us be the love that we show to others as we seek to remain in Jesus and be actively engaged with the world around us as we proclaim your kingdom. Help us over the next seven weeks as we journey through the letter to the Colossians to help us to know what it is to remain in you, to remain in your Son, to not be influenced by the culture around us, but to love the culture around us and to bring them into your kingdom as well. 
We pray as we go out into our week this week, help us to trust in you always, to know in the face of any opposition that we have that you are all-powerful and your word will prevail. We pray this in your son's precious name. Amen.